All right. Welcome to episode 13 of The Social Brain. I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone. This is my co-host Taylor Guthrie. And today we're talking about flow, the power of flow, flow states, the neuroscience of peak experience. Uh, it's going to be awesome. So stick around for it. Yeah. And I think that everyone has has probably felt this at some point in their life when they're doing something that they love to do. I mean, that's a big part of this, but that just really effortless point where it feels like every action is just flowing just right into the next one. There's there's not a, a lot of need to, to think about it. Uh, everything just just works. And it's something that has been described as kind of the ultimate form of productivity. And we'll kind of get into some of these studies that show that performance goes through the roof when you're in these stages. Uh, creativity is really high. But overall, I think one of the most important things about flow is that it seems to be one of the, the main kind of gateways to well-being, to feeling happy, right? The people that have the most flow in their lives tend to report being the most happy. And so we'll kind of talk about how that happens and how we can kind of build on intrinsic motivation, like we've talked about in previous episodes. We can build on kind of performance as we get better at things. Uh, all of these things are kind of linked. And the really cool thing about this episode uh, is that we kind of feel like this is a culmination of a lot of what we've talked about so far. So if this is your first time watching us, uh, you can definitely watch this whole episode without watching any of our old ones. Uh, but they will give you a lot of context in terms of, of how to really build up those skills on how to build up that intrinsic motivation that really kind of puts you at the doorstep of flow in the first place. Uh, because this isn't something that you can try to get into, right? The more you try to get into flow, the further away it gets, right? Uh, and so we'll talk about all of those things that kind of surround this state, that if you're working on each individual one of them, that you can probably experience more of this in your life. And this isn't something that's reserved for action sports, right? We'll, we'll talk a lot about that, right? Because that is one of the main kind of gateways into this experience. You have these snowboarders that are jumping 250 feet and surfers that are surfing 100 foot waves that wouldn't be doing that. It wouldn't be possible unless they were in this super hyper-focused state, right? Um, but this is also a state that you can take advantage of in your daily life. Right. And the work that you do, whether you're a computer programmer or whether you're uh, a nurse or a doctor or an artist. Right. Uh, the things that we love to do, we have the ability to get really hyper focused and to get into into the zone, into the forever box, whatever it's called, whatever uh, field you're in. So awesome. Let's kick it off. For sure. And as we uh, we go through and describe this and talk about flow, um, you guys will probably have you know, activities that come to mind that you do. And it could be like Taylor said, action sports or something like, like writing or programming or whatever it is, um, you know, art, sculpting, um, throw it in the comments, throw it in the chat. And uh, we'd love to see like, what are your flow inducing activities? Um, what makes be really... time disappear? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get more into what flow is, and then you'll be able to kind of map it on to what experiences you, you have of it. But I guess we should just start with what is flow? What is this? Uh, this It's a state of consciousness, but what? how is it different from other states of consciousness? And like Taylor was saying, there's this hyper-focused element of it, this sort of just total absorption into the task at hand. And if you saw the thumbnail for this episode, you saw it was like a mountain biker's head, and then it was just transparent and could see the mountain through it. And that's kind of how I think of it. It's like Everything disappears except that task at hand. Yep. Including the self, right? Our awareness of ourself. I think that's one of the, the really big uh, kind of points of flow is that there's no level of self-consciousness, right? There's no level of like, am I doing the right thing? Am I worried about what other people are thinking about me? There's this complete task absorption, like Andrew was just saying, where all you're focused on is what you need to accomplish. And it's usually something that we're good at. It's something that we really enjoy doing. And so like the mountain biker that really loves mountain biking, he is just completely focused on the task at hand of getting to the mountain, getting to the top of the mountain. Um, and everything else just kind of falls away. There's this merging of action and awareness, right? So there's no really thinking about doing, there's just doing. Uh, and anybody that's ever experienced this can kind of relate to how that feels, right? that you're not actually thinking about what to do next. It just, and this kind of comes into where the term flow came from, 
is that every single action is just flowing seamlessly into the next one without any thought. Yeah, and um, I guess we should mention the the kind of originator of this idea, the the original theorist who came up with the term flow, and his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which is spelled in a very unintuitive way. But um, anyway, he he did a lot of the early work um, involving like interviewing people about having these kinds of peak experiences. And then, like Taylor said, developed this term flow to describe them, um, particularly because of that merging of action and awareness where each action flows seamlessly into the next. Um, so yeah, sorry. And there was, I mean, there was an awareness of this state for hundreds of years. I mean, dating back even to like the, the Socratic philosophers, uh, that there's, there's been this awareness that if we can get into this really hyper-focused state that our productivity skyrockets, that our, uh, creativity gets really high. Right. And you have people, a lot of people listening have probably heard of Abraham Maslow. Maslow studied a bunch of people in terms of peak experiences. He went out and found all of these, these like <clears throat> high working uh, executives and people like Albert Einstein that had achieved these really amazing things and had had these peak experiences. Uh, and this, this, uh, this man, Csikszentmihalyi kind of went a little bit further with some of that stuff and wasn't looking just at these these like rare people that achieved these incredible things he actually went and talked to like everyone around the world i mean th this was one of the biggest global studies that's been conducted of him talking to experts talking to to sheep farmers talking to artists talking to uh like everyday people right uh, and ask them, like, what are those moments in your life that you are the most absorbed in what you're doing and getting the most out of it? Uh, and that really set the foundation for a really strong kind of uh, psychological perspective on all of these things that are going on. And we'll kind of get into some of the brain stuff uh, in the second half of this episode. But the psychology stuff is pretty solid in terms of how we know that people experience these and what are the, the kind of individual things that come together to make the flow state possible? Yeah, because uh, you mentioned earlier that like you can't necessarily just force yourself into this state, but you can set up the conditions and the environment and your own kind of mindset going into certain tasks to try to maximize the, uh, you know, the potential, the, the, uh, the possibility that it's actually going to happen, that you're going to enter into this flow state. And um, you have this interesting idea about about maybe what that there's some kind of evolutionary function to this, right? Yeah, um, I mean one of the one of the big triggers for flow is is risk, right? And so there was all of this work that Csikszentmihalyi did, kind of early on, looking at everyday people. But then all of a sudden there was this this hyper focus on the flow state that I think revolved around the rise of action sports, right? All of a sudden in the '90s, I mean early 90s, the, the largest wave that was ever surfed was like 25 feet. And there was like papers that had been written about how it was physically impossible to ride a wave that was any bigger than that. And then all of a sudden, now we have surfers surfing 100 foot waves like routinely. Uh, and you have like the, the, the snowboarders that were jumping maybe 40 foot gaps, which 40 feet is huge, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden, now they're jumping like 250 feet, right? These people that are doing these things that are death-defying, that are putting them in the, these extreme risk situations, that that risk is like automatically getting them into flow, right? If they weren't in flow, if they weren't incredibly hyper-focused on the task at hand, they wouldn't survive these things, right? And so what I what I think is, is maybe going on is that there's a an evolutionary adaptation that it's really beneficial in, in times of extreme risk to be in these really hyper-focused states, right? To not be up in your, your default mode. This is a, a network of regions that we've talked about earlier on the show that produces feelings of self-consciousness, right? Thinking about what other people are thinking about us, thinking about uh, whether we're going to accomplish something in the future or what, what's been done in the past, right? All of that needs to be turned off. Because when you're in these high-risk situations, you need to be making decisions really, really quickly. And so most of what I think is going on is that there's an energy exchange, right? 
these regions of the brain that allow you to think about the future, that allow you to think about other people and other people's opinions and develop the sense of self, they're really energy intensive, right? Uh, they're in these like the frontal lobe that is super like interconnected, takes tons of resources. And we need to divert all of those resources to the areas of our brain that actually produce the action that are making the decision about what to do next. Um, and this ties in really well with some of the, the stuff that we've talked about before on this, this show in terms of skill acquisition, right? In terms of high performance, that these people that are making these 250 foot jumps and surfing these 100 foot waves are people that have dedicated their lives to learning how to snowboard and learning how to surf. And in those moments, their body knows what to do, right? And so they have this, instead of this top-down thing going on from frontal lobe, like thinking about what we should do, everything's coming from the bottom up. They're getting reactions from the board. They're getting reactions from their environment. And that is immediately feeding into action. It's immediately feeding into the next thing. And so that's why you kind of feel this, this effortless, like one thing flowing seamlessly into the next, because you're not thinking about it. Your body knows what to do. And you're just kind of along for the ride. Yeah, and that's so cool. There's the we've uh, we're going to talk more about the neuroscience uh, probably later on, but um, there's there's one idea about what flow might be one one aspect of flow, especially this this seamless um, automaticity of movement. Um, we've talked before about how there's there's uh, sub, the subcortical brain regions that are involved in movement are really doing a lot of stuff automatically like they are just kind of um initiating these these uh central pattern these uh patterns of movement basically from these central pattern generators yep. but um one idea is that kind of that function gets handed off to the cerebellum which is involved in smoothing out motor movements and so if you kind of think about it well if you're in this flow state that's very smooth and your every action's leading into the next and you don't have to think about it it would make sense that these subcortical regions and maybe specifically the cerebellum is really taking over that function and allowing for all that training that you've done in the past to mm -hmm. build up, to figure out, to uh, get your body to do those particular kinds of movements. That all just becomes automatic through these, perhaps through these subcortical regions. Um, but again, we're going to get into the neuroscience a little bit later. So Maybe we should come back to to some of these other um, these features of flow. Um, so we talked about uh, that it is it's high productivity. It's but it's also this peak experience. So it yeah. is uh, referred to as autotelic, which is basically means an, an end in itself, um, or what we talked about in the last episode on motivation, intrinsic motivation, doing something for the sake of doing that thing. You like the doing of what you're doing. And um, <laughs> that is a condition that is often present, perhaps necessary for, for you to get into this flow state. Yeah. And I think it's absolutely necessary. I think it's one of the things that really defines this state is that it's enjoyable, uh, is that you want to be in these flow states. And they become very addictive. I mean, this is why action sports is, is so addictive because you get into these flow states. And this is this is true in sports and in, in football and soccer, even like runners high. You get this from cycling, right? These moments of just like bliss, right? Where you're just in this zone and everything just feels amazing. And a lot of that, like what Andrew was just saying, this, this autotelic nature of it, you're doing it for the experience. You're not doing it to get to the top of the mountain. You're not doing it to, to score the goal or whatever it may be. You're doing it because you love to do it. And that really ties in with our, our last episode on intrinsic motivation is that you are tying into a lot of these dopamine processes of if you are kind of cognitively viewing this activity itself as being rewarding, then your reward centers are going to like tell you like, oh yeah, this is great. Like keep doing this. Your motivation is going to be really high to keep doing it. Right. Um, but uh, Andrew and I were just kind of joking before the, the show started about this not being something that comes up with just anything that you're skilled at. Right. Andrew was like, I'm really skilled at doing dishes, but I don't get it to flow. And I'm like, uh, and it's because like, these are things that you really, really have to be absorbed in. Um, and when you're doing something that you're really good at, but you don't really love, there's not a lot of uh, 
incentive to like really be in the moment. Like a lot of times in those moments, your mind is somewhere else, right? Yeah, that's a really great point. It's it definitely has to do with that that reward of the task itself mm -hmm. that you you really want to get into it. And like we said, this doesn't have to be, you know, uh, playing sports or especially not action sports. I mean, I think for me, writing is the probably my biggest like flow inducing activity. Maybe also like mountain biking, but um, writing is just it's it. I think incorporates all of this. Uh, all of what we're talking about for me, at least. Um, and one thing that we've maybe touched on a little bit, but maybe can expand on is the, the increased creativity. So I think that's really relevant for these more cognitive tasks. Like if you're a writer or a programmer or an artist of any kind, um, getting into this flow state, um, it's hard to say exactly why it increases creativity, but I think it it allows you to be so absorbed into this task that maybe you're seeing new ways of doing these things, new pathways that you haven't explored before, um, but you're seeing which ones might work better than others without actually having to think about all that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this this flow of creativity as well. And I, I mean, I get that with with teaching. That, you know, when I'm up in front of 30, 40 people, I, I know the material, right? And there, there may be a certain way that I like plan to deliver the material. But in that moment, when I get there and I feel like things are all of a sudden, these different ideas are, are just like coming together. And I'm pitching it in a way that I maybe didn't even think about before. And that my brain is like just kind of making these connections on its own. Um, and like Andrew said, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about that when we get into more of the brain stuff is that we don't know why a lot of that stuff is happening. And there's a lot of speculation around that, right? Like, uh, if we're not, uh, if we don't have this like sense of self and the self-consciousness that maybe we're, we're more apt to like deliver things that we maybe would have been like, oh, somebody's going to judge me for doing that. Right. Uh, there's, there's this more impulsive way of acting that we're just kind of letting these things out and letting these things flow. Um, flow <laughs> yeah. but yeah yeah uh, but there's there's been studies around creativity uh that shows that if you can induce some type of flow state that you can get like three four times the amount of creativity as as like control groups that didn't kind of engage in some kind of flow state that's great yeah that's good that's interesting um we have a a comment in the chat from bruce he says uh, this autotelic flow, I visualize it like a looped pipeline. The more energy put into it, the more it reinforces itself with the flow of the pipe. Is this why some people speed up till burnout? Um, <laughs> that's a good question, uh, like anxiety conditions. Um, yeah, good question. I feel like, yeah, I, I can see what you're talking about, that you were, um, you get this flow state going and maybe this kind of dopamine loop starts up and you're you're intrinsically motivated to keep doing this task keep doing it and going and going um until you burn out but i'm not sure i think that flow is probably a good way to avoid burnout or to to keep kind of buffer that from happening i don't know what do you think taylor uh i mean to a certain extent uh if you're constantly engaged in flow so there's there's a lot there's kind of a cycle <clears throat> Uh, that we haven't gotten too into, but uh, usually when you're going through through flow, you have this struggle period where you're really trying to figure something out. Uh, and then you have this release period where you're kind of just like, okay, I'm going to let go of the cognitive side of things. I'm going to just like relax for a minute. And then all of a sudden, once you're able to get your brain into a relaxed state, you get into this flow moment and you get this dopamine pumping and all of this stuff going. But the most important thing that I think a lot of people forget about is that there's a rest period that needs to come after the flow period. Because if you're constantly like jacked up on dopamine, there's only so much dopamine reserve that you can have in your brain. And I think that's really what leads to burnout. These people that are constantly engaged in action sports, like over and over and over again, without a lot of rest and recuperation, they are burning out those reserves. And if you don't have a really kind of high baseline of dopamine, uh, you're going to lack motivation to do anything. And that's kind of the definition of burnout. Um, but these these tasks in themselves, like Andrew was hinting at, um, are somewhat of a buffer to burnout because of the fact that it's something that you love to do. It's not something that you're kind of like forcing yourself to get out of bed to go do. 
that it is the action itself and not kind of the reward you're going to get at the end of the tunnel that kind of produces that feeling of motivation and well-being. Yeah, that's that's a really great way of looking at it. Well, I guess we we just touched on the idea that it can help uh, with kind of our mental health and and maybe buffering anxiety or stress or maybe just being a I don't know quote unquote escape <laughs> from stress and anxiety. Um, it, I mean, do we want to touch a little more on that, or should we move into the the conditions that, well, to help people? yeah their lives to get into flow and i think that there's something that kind of really ties into to bruce's question about kind of this unregulated flow anxiety that keeps building um it's i think really important to understand one of the components that we haven't mentioned that we're we're kind of getting into and that's the idea that flow itself is built on a skill and challenge kind of matchup right and there's these really nice graphs that have been made by like Csikszentmihalyi that kind of describe this, where you have challenge on the y-axis and you have skill on the x-axis. And so it's this idea that as your skills get higher, you can, or as your skills get higher, your challenge can get higher. Um, and the flow state is that state in the middle where your challenge and your skills are really kind of matched up with each other. But if the challenge is too high, if the challenge is higher than your skills, you're going to experience anxiety. And if the challenge is too low, if you're really skilled and the challenge is too low, you're going to experience boredom, right? And so it's really this, this fine kind of space in between anxiety and boredom that you really get the pleasant feeling of flow. And as soon as that challenge starts to get too high, because you want something that is kind of bringing you a little bit out of your comfort zone, something that makes you struggle a little bit to get into flow. But if it gets too high, that's when you get into the possibility of, of trauma and fear and anxiety, right? Um, I think honestly that there's a fight or flight mechanism going on with uh, with the flow experience in general. I mean, some the most potent flow triggers are around risk of consequence, right? And so you get into this fight or flight mode. <clears throat> but I think one of the big things is that you're kind of saying yes to the fight. Uh, that's something that comes out in a lot of people that talk about this uh, is that instead of <clears throat> getting into this kind of fear state, this anxiety state. You're saying like, yes, I want to be in this struggle. I want to be in this kind of mode. Um, and so that could yeah. tie into the idea of anxiety is that that might be kind of outside of that optimal zone where the challenge might be too high. And that's why it's producing this fear and this anxiety. Yeah. And it, that reminds me of uh, something we talked about in the last episode on intrinsic motivation, where um, when you're in these these difficult tasks and you kind of tell yourself to embrace that challenge, that effortful, difficult part of what you're doing, um, that can allow you to get deeper into it and actually enjoy eventually, like kind of train yourself to enjoy that struggle. So there may be something there where you're, you're either increasing your skills and then embracing the challenge. And then you can kind of get into this flow state, get away from that anxiety. Um, but yeah, it's a really good point about the skills challenge matchup being really important. Um, we got one more question here. So the, so the flow can also be healthy because it can buffer by absorbing and using loose or excess energy, like how a magnetic flow works. It's hmm. an interesting about idea. that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, something that's really interesting about flow is that it, it seems to be incredibly efficient. Uh, your brain is not doing a lot. And so uh, you could have like all of this excess energy when you're in these like really highly deliberative modes, especially anxiety modes where you're just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen, right? Uh, flow is characterized by a very relaxed state in the brain. Um, and it's also characterized by not a lot of brain regions actually being active. Um, this is something that we kind of hinted at in an earlier episode when we were talking about high performance and learning like motor skills is that the more skilled you get at something, the less kind of cognitive control you need. And so when you look at someone's brain, when they're doing something they're really, really good at, their brain is kind of silent, uh, at least like the, the cortical regions that are involved in cognitive control and things like that. Um, and so that's that's an interesting idea. Yeah. And that points to well, like one of the conditions, I guess, that you, you have to you have to be pretty skilled at something. You have to already have trained in those automatic, you know, reflexes or, or automatic actions and 
I guess, thoughts even too. Um, but um, that, so yeah, so we're, we're kind of like automatizing these motor actions and these other things that we're doing. Um, but maybe we should get into what, what's another, another one of the um, conditions for flow is having clear goals and objectives, mm -hmm. right? So um, knowing what you're trying to do and knowing how you, or at least that you're trying, where you're trying to get, even if you're not quite certain of how you're going to get there. So if you're like a snowboarder coming down a mountain and you want to get through the trees, like you might not know exactly which path you're going to take, but you know exactly what your, your goal is, what your objective is. You have the skills to do it and you're absorbed into that task. And there's immediate feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, from kind of the feeling of your board, you know, from the feeling of whether you just wrote something good or not uh, and how you feel about that. Uh, you know, from if you're writing code and it's just not working, like there's something that's giving you an indication of whether you're kind of on the right track or not, that is allowing these kind of automatic processes to have something to pick up on. Um, and I mean, this is, it's easy to talk about in terms of action sports because that immediate feedback is right there and it's danger inducing, right? It's like, if I make the wrong turn, the wrong little thing, that's going to throw me off completely. But having this these clear objectives and this immediate feedback really puts you into this just snapful action kind of awareness. Same with comedians, right? They talk about being in the forever box. That's how Robin Williams described it is that he was getting immediate feedback from his audience. Like he knew the clear goal was that like, I'm here to, to deliver a performance and to make people laugh and to give people enjoyment. And I'm getting that immediate feedback from my audience. That's then kind of prompting me into this really creative state. That, yeah, that's so cool. I was, I was thinking about meditation and I've heard, um, this term, uh, Samadhi, I guess it's from yoga, uh, Hindu yoga practice. And it, it's really close to the concept of flow, like being completely absorbed into this, this state. And it's interesting to think about in the, in the context of meditation, because it's almost like you are just, you're having a flow experience, but just in the context of almost your own mind, mm -hmm. like it's not even a, a real task. So I wonder if, if we can kind of like enter into this state without, um, without necessarily doing anything. I don't know. <laughs> that was just a, a thought, but um, I want to mention one other thing about uh, how you might know you're in a flow state or, or what it feels like um, that we didn't touch on was, temporal distortion. Yeah. So like your sense of time can change. And some people say uh, speeds up, like it just felt like a second and it was over. Or some people say time slows down. So there's this, it's not really clear like which way it's always going to go. Um, but that may be something that you notice in a flow state. And I think, uh, I mean, we can kind of preview a little bit because I, I think that some of at least the the slowing down component of time I think is usually linked to danger components or risk components of the flow state. Um, so there was a, a really interesting study that David Eagleman did where he was looking at time perception. Uh, Stephen Coulter, who's a really big kind of person in the flow world, was actually a part of that study. I didn't know that until recently. Uh, but they were they were pushing people off of this giant tower. I think it was like three or four stories into a net at the bottom. Um, and they were trying to think like, OK, there are these moments that are incredibly dangerous where it seems like time slows down, right? I can see, and David Eagleman thought about doing this study because of a, a past event that he had been through where he had actually fallen off of a roof. And he remembered seeing the detail of the bricks as he was falling and everything just seemed to be moving in slow motion, right? Um, and so they they put these chronometers on people's wrists and they was uh, it was numbers that were flashing really, really fast. And the idea was that if they were really slowing down time, that they'd be able to see the numbers. And so they pushed them off. They tried to read the numbers. They got to the bottom and they weren't able to read the numbers. And so they weren't actually slowing down time. But the conclusion that they made from it was that in these really high risk situations, you're actually tagging a lot of information as being important, right? And this, this comes back to what we talked about as uh, in terms of dopamine on our last episode is that there's so many novel things, so many like, 
like, oh my gosh, I need to pay attention to anything I can to save me, that your brain is is creating this time series that has lots and lots and lots of information. And so when you look back on it, it seems like time slowed down when really it, you just have a ton of information to look back on. But I think what characterizes flow more often is this idea of time disappearing, is that you get so absorbed in this task that time just kind of disappears. Um, and there's, there's not a lot of clear indications of why that is, uh, but it very much could be tied to the fact that um, you're kind of shutting down some of these uh, regions in the frontal lobe that keep track of long-term information. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I recently did a, uh, a sensory deprivation float yeah, tank, yeah. and I've done them in the past, but I like I used to do them a lot more. But I noticed, yeah, that I was in there for 90 minutes, and it's completely black, completely well. You have earplugs mm -hmm. in, so completely silent and you're just floating so like you have almost no sensory data coming in except for just the ripples in the water and mm -hmm. you know the sounds of your own body really um and we, time it's it's like it's hard to even describe because it doesn't feel like time is slowing down or speeding up it's just like you said it's just on <laughs> not a concept anymore it's just gone and then you're like huh i wonder if 20 minutes or you know 60 minutes has passed i don't even know um but then eventually it ends and and you come out of that and i think that that is uh you know i'm re relating this back to meditation and mindfulness which we've talked about in a previous episode as well but i think yeah you're probably onto something about the kind of shutting off those cognitive control networks or, or altering their activity so that they're maybe the, our, our tracking of time moment to moment kind of mm -hmm. just changes so much that it's time is sort of unrecognizable to us. And I mean, these are the moments that we enjoy the most, right? When you look back on your life, it's like those moments that flew were the ones that were really enjoyable that, that were like, I wanted to be doing that. Right. Uh, and so I think, I mean, the one thing that we haven't talked a lot about, but I think is kind of a, a good segue is the hyper-focus part of this is that flow follows focus, right? You have to be focused on what you're doing. Um, and this, I think, is, is really practical for anybody that's uh, doing any kind of like occupational job that they want to incorporate flow into. Uh, if you're doing computer programming or if you're writing or if you're doing some type of art project or something like that, if you want to be in flow, you need to turn your phone off. You need to turn your emails off. <laughs> like you can't have distractions because as soon as you get pulled away from the task at hand, your opportunity to get into flow is just done. Uh, a lot of the people that that actually go and do these uh these kind of talks and things with big companies and walk them through how to incorporate flow in their companies. I uh, actually recommend like hanging a sign on the door. That's like F off. I'm in flow. Right. Uh, that, <laughs> and they also very highly recommend uh, getting rid of any type of uh, any type of rule in the company. That's like, you need to respond to emails within 15 minutes or respond to emails within 30 minutes. Uh, because if there's this constant need that you have to be like every time you hear a ding and you look up and you're like, oh, I got an email. I got to check my email right now, right? Uh, every time you do that, you're taking away from your ability to drop into that moment. Uh, and dropping into that moment is a huge productivity boost. Uh, some of these studies, um, th there's a lot of kind of stuff with the flow research that it's not really clear whether these researchers are studying the same thing. Um, but some of these studies where they kind of implicate people being in flow, CEOs being in flow, uh, they report being five times more product productive. And a lot of that could be just like task engagement, right? If you are super focused on the task at hand, and if you're getting rid of all of those distractions, you can accomplish more in one day than you can accomplish in an entire week, right? Yeah, especially if you enjoy the yeah. task that you're doing. Totally. Like that comes back to that intrinsic motivation. It's just like this like the the loop that that Bruce described the pipeline <laughs> where you know the more energy you put into it the more it reinforces itself that's kind of there's something there um yeah so uh i was just going to say yeah some of this like Terry was talking about with the research um even though flow was first described in uh, 1975 mm -hmm. i think um it's still 
new. Yeah, like there's this one paper we might link to, but they talk about how uh, th this might be in a kind of pre-paradigm state where the, the science scientists are still converging on definitions and on how to operationalize this idea of flow, how to actually study it mm -hmm. in the lab. Because as you can imagine, a lot of this, what we're talking about, it's really personalized. Yep. I mean, it's hard to think about an experimental paradigm where you could reliably induce flow in people who, you know, you might have somebody who's a, a writer and they get into flow through writing, or you have someone who's a you know, cyclist and that's what they do. And it's like, okay, can you just give them all the same kind of task and, and get them into flow? Um, yeah. So it's, it's an exciting, interesting new field, but some of the conclusions and some of the research is a little bit, uh, it's kind of disagrees or there's, there's not quite consensus in the field, I guess. Yes. I think really important to think about as we move. So we're going to transition a little bit into some of the brain stuff, but I think the really important thing to, to think about here is that a lot of the brain stuff is speculative, right? Um, is that we cannot stick someone into this, this noisy donut of an MRI machine, uh, while they're riding a hundred foot wave uh, or while they're kind of engaged in this really kind of enjoyable, like, I don't know how many of you have ever been in, M in an MRI. Uh, it's not the most enjoyable thing to be in. It's really loud. Uh, it's really tight and kind of claustrophobic. Uh, and so to put someone in there and you only have usually an hour, an hour is usually like 650 to $700, uh, to run someone. And so you're sticking someone in an hour in a particular time of day and just hoping that whatever task you have is going to induce something that you can call flow, right? And so the actual data, the real data that we have on flow is maybe not where we're getting a lot of these ideas from, right? Um, and a lot of the people that are kind of at the forefront of this movement that are talking to companies that are going out, uh, Stephen Coulter is a big one, right? Jamie Whelan, uh, they're hinting at a lot of these this work that's done. So some of the fMRI researchers are Dimitri Vanderlinden, uh, Richard Husky, but they're using video games. They put someone in a scanner and they give them a video game that looks like asteroids. There's some other ones that, that they use. Uh, but the whole idea is that we talked about a big part of flow being the skill challenge match, right? So they create these video games to be something that as you get better at it, it gets harder. And so it's constantly putting you in this match. So if you're not doing well, it gets easier, right? And so it's keeping you from getting frustrated. It's keeping you from getting bored. And there's this assumption that because you're in this kind of skill challenge match that you're also hopefully in flow. Um, but a lot of the actual stuff that we're going to talk about is linked to other fields of study, is stuff that we know from, from people that study attention, from people that study the default mode network, from people that study altered states of consciousness like meditation and psychedelics that have similar properties to what are described from kind of a, a self-perspective of someone being in flow. And we can use that to kind of create a theory around what we think is going on in the brain. Uh, but I just want everybody to know that like we don't know. Uh, and there's a lot of people that talk like we do know and we don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's some there are some kind of more like optimistic, uh, you know, peer reviewed sources out there. And then there are some that are a lot more conservative, kind of pessimistic about what's actually known in the field. So maybe we'll we'll link to some of those studies if, if anyone's interested. Um, but yeah, let's maybe we can get into some of these general brain mechanisms and see like perhaps these will map on to the flow state. Um, so we've talked a lot about focus and attention and how it's this hyper-focused state. You zero in on what you're doing and that is your world. That's part of the flow state. Everything you're doing is kind of geared toward that and what you're perceiving is is that really. So what do we think? What like what's going on in the brain. Um, well, it's definitely going to involve these attention networks and, and regions that we've talked about in previous episodes. But Taylor, you mentioned the default mode earlier. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, the default mode network's my jam. That's like what I study. Um, it's a big part of our feeling of our sense of self, 
And the default mode network is the region that, that really keeps track of, of long-term information. It's what allows us to think about the future. It's what allows us to think really far into the past, to put things together, to think about things that are important to us, to think about whether people are judging us. Uh, all of that stuff is irrelevant when it comes to flow, right? We don't need any of that. And there have been some theories that have been put out. Uh, if you get at all into this, like if you're watching other videos about flow, you're probably going to hear a term called transient hypofrontality. Uh, there's a guy named Arna Dietrich uh, that came up with this theory that what's going on in altered states of consciousness, in meditation, in, uh, in psychedelics, and in flow is that the frontal lobe is shutting down. Uh, and that was, I think, not super supported by the data because it's not just that your entire frontal lobe is shutting off. Uh, people get into flow while they're playing chess. You can't play chess without a frontal lobe. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Yeah, or, or writing. I mean, those uh, ling language regions in the frontal totally. lobe. And so yeah. what we think is, is maybe going on is that it's not that the whole frontal lobe is shutting down. It's that certain regions of the frontal lobe, particularly the, the medial uh, portion right here, the region that's really implicated in our feeling, our sense of self, right? And that's tied into these, these default mode networks. That sense of self is what is described in meditation states as disappearing and psychedelic states as, as disappearing and in flow states as disappearing. And it's, uh, it's even like a lot of people go so far as to say like the self doesn't exist because it disappears in these moments. Um, but I think it's more that like that region of our brain is just not being given any resources, right? Because in those moments, like what's the benefit of thinking about myself? What's the benefit of thinking about whether people are judging me or planning for the future? I need to be right here in the moment, right? Because things might be dangerous right now. Things might be high consequence, right? We talk a lot about risk being something that pushes you into these zones. And risk is really easy to think about when you think about action sports. But risk can also be deadlines. It can also be high consequences at work, right? Those are things that are also going to throw you into these flow states that are going to get you out of kind of these self-conscious modes and get you into this work mode. Like, I need to get stuff done. And so I think that's a big part of kind of this loss of sense of self. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and this uh, like increase in attention or, or like uh, focused attention. Um, I mean, we've talked about in our attention episode about how attention may be this sort of preferential processing of certain kind of information or certain streams of information over others. And so this to me points back to the fact that flow is going to be fairly personal or sorry, it's going to be fairly personal in the sense that the tasks that you do to induce flow are going to be pretty specific to you. And so what I'm getting at there is when you're, if you're a mountain biker biking, you know, down the mountain, um, that, that, uh, attention process is going to preferentially or, or kind of, uh, amplify, streams of information that are most relevant to your, you know, ability to get down that mountain without breaking your leg versus when you're in a chess tournament and you're, you know, a grandmaster playing chess, um, it's going to be a t probably a different uh, kind of different information that's going to mm -hmm. be preferentially processed, different kind of attention or not different kind of attention, but um, different information that gets attention, if that makes sense. And something that's that's coming out kind of along the lines of what you're getting at, Andrew, um, is there have been some studies in the MRI that have shown there's a region called the locus ceruleus that uh, is really important for producing norepinephrine. And that's kind of the equivalent to adrenaline. You don't have to remember all these brain regions or anything. But the, the, the point here is that a lot of studies have linked this brain region to calculations of whether or not there is high reward in the environment. Right. And so if there is any kind of like high reward right now, then we should kick a bunch of adrenaline out into the body to be active, to get that reward, to, to go out and kind of exploit the environment. Right. Um, and that tends to be kind of one of what a lot of the theorists think is kicking the flow state into gear is really getting this kind of adrenaline going, getting this task involvement, because that norepinephrine is really linked to these these high focus states 
uh, really kind of getting into the moment. Uh, and this is uh, Dimitri van der Linden is, uh, is a big one here that's kind of studied the effects of that on flow. And um, just to piggyback on that, the, uh, the locus ceruleus is also just kind of involved in, in general brain like activation, like yeah. keeping your brain active and awake. So, um, I mean, that, that would make sense. Obviously you don't want to be falling asleep. Biking. Okay. So that, that points us to, as you were just saying, kind of to the, the reward system, the, the dopamine reward prediction error, motivation and learning system. Um, and as we were kind of talking about earlier, there's this aspect of flow that's where the, the, one of the conditions that can help you get into flow is doing a task that is intrinsically rewarding, something that you get a reward out of doing the thing. And in our video on motivation and dopamine, um, we talked about how uh, that, that process involves these mesolimbic and mesocortical dopamine systems. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also about learning too. So maybe <laughs> want to talk about, I, I mean, they've shown a lot of these studies around flow have shown that your, your learning abilities is really heightened in these situations. Um, that, uh, I know that there was one done by, by DARPA with, uh, Navy SEAL snipers, I think that showed if they were able to induce a flow state that there was learning rates that were two to three times higher than these other people that weren't able to do that. Um, and that could very much be tied to a lot of this kind of dopamine dump that's happening, right? Uh, we talked a lot on the last episode about kind of dopamine being tied to this, this kind of learning component. They can show in studies, if you like drop dopamine at the same time that two neurons are communicating with each other, you can literally watch these neurons start to grow together. Uh, that adding the dopamine is a really strong component to creating these long-term connections, this whole fire together, wire together. Dopamine tends to be a big part of that. And so if you're in this, this moment of being kind of ecstatic, being highly motivated, having all of this dopamine dumping, uh, there's a high chance that you are going to bring a lot out of that experience and that you're going to come to that experience the next time with a lot more skill. I mean, this is where you see the productivity, the performance, the creativity kind of outlasting the flow state. That's really interesting. And also when we were talking about norepinephrine, um, I know that that kind of increased levels of norepinephrine after you do some kind of activity is strongly associated with um, like increased, uh, you know, remembering increased memory for that that event or that thing that you're doing. So there's kind of this like ner potent neurochemical soup <laughs> that's going on during flow that's allowing you to be highly motivated and then also enhancing uh, learning from that event. So that maybe points to if, if you want to get better at something quickly, if you can find a way to get into a flow state while you're doing that thing, it's going to really boost your brain's ability to learn and remember and create those connections you need to to increase your skills get better at that and there's something here that uh that's really interesting so i've i've been watching a lot of talks uh around this uh and you hear some of the kind of the, the top people in the field uh talking about how there's just this this dump of all of these neurochemicals and i think something that i want to put as kind of a caveat here uh is that our brain is probably releasing a certain amount of norepinephrine, adrenaline, getting us going. It's probably releasing a certain amount of dopamine um, and it's probably shutting down default mode network or whatever it is. But I think it would be kind of wrong to say that we know that this is happening the same way in all of these different cases, right? That someone that is playing chess and is in flow is experiencing the same kind of neurochemical dump as someone that's riding a hundred foot wave, right? Uh, there's probably some really distinct differences between these two states, right? Uh, and there's probably very different levels of norepinephrine, of dopamine, of some of these other ones that are being released, um, even kind of some of the feel-good chemicals, the uh, endorphins and things like that. Uh, and so a lot of what's happening, I think, in the industry is that uh, this is a very lucrative industry, the, the flow industry. Like there's lots of companies that want to induce this uh, in the workplace. Uh, there's a lot of schools that want to induce this in kind of a creativity way. 
Uh, and that creates an atmosphere where if you put a picture of a brain up, then it makes everything seem like, oh, this is <laughs> this is totally legit. Uh, and I think that that's something that I've really struggled with as I've gone through a lot of this research is that there's a lot of stuff that looks really interesting, right? There's there's probably this intrinsic motivation component of getting dopamine flowing and norepinephrine really getting you involved in the task and and all of that. But there's also, I think, some very distinct differences between these different states uh, that we just don't know enough about yet. Yeah. And on that note, we got a question here saying uh, from Bruce again. So so the dopamine helps the connection strengthen like pathways deepen so that they become the most likely course of action when triggered again. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. But as as Taylor's saying, <laughs> yes, most likely. But uh, we're also, like we said, in this kind of early stage of especially the neuroscience research on flow, really young, kind of a lot of different conclusions, different methods of looking at this, different uh, definitions of flow. So um, tentatively, yeah. I think that ties in really well with kind of the next thing that we're going to lead to is uh, a lot of what's described in a flow state is this merging of action and awareness, right? That you feel kind of at one with what you're doing. You're not really thinking about it. It's just kind of flowing one thing to the next. Uh, that tends to indicate that there's probably, like I mentioned earlier, this bottom-up process that's happening. That instead of there being this kind of cognitive control from the top down, that you're the subcortical regions, like Andrew mentioned, you have the basal ganglia, the cerebellum, are all really what are controlling movement. And these are heavy dopamine dump regions of the brain. Um, and so if you are engaged in this task and you're doing it a certain way and you're kind of in this kind of flow state, it's probably the case that you're creating a pathway to, to use later. So um, if you go back and watch our, our episode on kind of motor learning in general, is that the more you engage in that, the more you're setting up your body to be in an automatic kind of process of knowing exactly what, what moves to go to, what skills to go to. Um, and if this is one of those states that increases your productivity, then that's probably laying down kind of future pathways for, for more movement when you come back to it. Yeah. And just, a just kind of a general principle of the brain. We'll probably, we'll almost certainly do an episode on uh, neuroplasticity mm -hmm. in the future, but you know, just neurons that fire together, wire <laughs> together. So like if you're doing something and you're doing it again and again and again, you're causing those neurons to fire again and again and again, and they're going to make stronger and stronger connections with each other. Um, and I guess one of the last things we'll talk about is uh, this aspect of flow that is enjoyable. Yeah. This like we actually like what we're doing and, and maybe even get a sense of purpose from it. And um, I've we've talked about uh, motivation and difference between kind of wanting and liking, uh, between seeking and pleasure. Um, but it's likely that while you're you're doing this these flow inducing activities, you're getting these these um, so called pleasure hotspots, these hedonic hotspots active in your brain, and that's going to be tied to the uh, endogenous opioid or endorphin system and the endocannabinoid system, which is the same system that the, uh, the principal ingredients in like marijuana, mm -hmm. so THC and CBD interact with. And these are really kind of your brain's pleasure molecules, although that's <laughs> a simplistic way of interpreting it. But it's, uh, I think it's really interesting because I think that one of the things that, that really sets flow apart from just regular task engagement or trying to do things is that it's a very relaxed state of doing it is that you I mean you think about like Andrew just mentioned uh, the endocannabinoid system is a lot of these the same components that come from from THC from marijuana uh, that puts you in this really relaxed state uh, and then same with the endorphins like when you're in a runner's high when you're uh, in these kind of peak experiences, you feel kind of at peace, right? You feel like this, this pleasure, this warm hug kind of feeling. Um, and a lot of that is coming from, from these endorphins. And I think it sets it apart as being something different than just being like, like really active and engaged and like trying really hard that it's instead of really trying, you're like, 
easing back into this like feel good state uh, where you're also kind of engaged in the task, uh, which really kind of makes it unique. Um, and this is something that does get talked about a lot from the people that go out and kind of give these talks is that uh, there seems to be a pretty big dump of lots of different neurotransmitters um, that are all kind of coming together to to merge these different networks in the brain that don't seem to usually be active at the same time, right? That kind of give you this different feeling of kind of euphoria and action kind of all in one. Yeah, and I, I just keep thinking back to our episode on emotions when we talked about um, Jak Pongsep's work on the what he calls the, the play system, the play and seeking system, that there's these specific subcortical circuits that uh, get activated to kind of produce or induce these um, basic emotions, although that's a whole nother controversial field of neuroscience. But um, if, if so, I mean, it would make sense that, that maybe some of these networks that are being linked together, like you're talking about, Taylor, are the the play system and the seeking system. Mm -hmm. So these kind of wanting and liking in, in unison or, or simultaneous, some, some way that they're kind of being woven together I like that. Um, and producing this really psychologically potent and um, enjoyable state. And it's, I think something that, that kind of gives some credence to this uh, and something that I, I haven't really mentioned a lot because uh, I mean, I, I normally do kind of MRI work, but there is a lot of EEG work that's being done with this population that is showing that there are these like different dynamic properties that are going on. Um, and usually when we're in one of those states where we're actively trying and we're doing these things, not really kind of in an enjoyment state or whatever, we're in kind of this beta wave, this really fast, like we're, we're thinking about things, we're trying to figure things out. Our brain is just kind of an overdrive. You can think about when you're learning a skill, right? And you really have to pay attention and do all of these things. Uh, but what really defines flow is that we go from this really heavy beta struggle into a relaxed state, which is defined as like an alpha state. It's really kind of rhythmic property. When you're watching someone on an EEG, it looks like they're falling asleep uh, when they get into alpha, right? They're getting into this really hyper relaxed state. Uh, and that's usually where you're at the border of flow is going from this really heavy activity down into this relaxed state where you're starting to feel good. And then all of a sudden, when you get into flow, they tend to see a lot of theta rhythms and uh, sometimes gamma bursts, which uh, tend to be really heavily engaged in heavy meditators. So people that meditate a lot can get into theta. Theta is supposedly a kind of brainwave that syncs different parts of the brain up together. And so this could be one of the things that we're talking about that allows these different networks to kind of that don't normally communicate with each other to kind of come online at the same time. That's yeah, that is fascinating. And those are, yeah, the, I, I think you mentioned it, but you were just talking about EEG waves. So we're really looking at kind of whole mm -hmm. brain activity and, and seeing the, the difference in the waves. Um, so one more question from Bruce here, and then I think we're just yeah. going <laughs> to, uh, we maybe have one more section, but Bruce says, what about, what, about things like this. When I draw, I doodle without paying attention or focus and draw. The doodles are smoother motor act, motor action transitions. Is this because doodles are more relaxed? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Good. It's definitely possible. If you get into a flow state while you're doodling, then that yeah. yeah um, and it's it could be something that uh, that is kind of putting you into that relaxed state, and that's that's where it's really hard with a lot of these things. Uh, and I think one of the things that we really wanted to highlight in this episode is that. This is a cottage industry. This is an industry where there's a lot of money, there's a lot of marketing. Um, and I think because of that, a lot of the brain stuff has really been kind of rushed. And we're, we're going out, we're talking like, this is what's going on in your brain when you're in flow. And we don't really know how to define flow yet. I mean, there, there are some certain definitions from the psychology side. Uh, but when you look at how people study it, it's all over the board. And so uh, could it, if I'm in a relaxed state, does that mean I'm in flow? Uh, if I'm enjoying something that I'm doing, does that mean that I'm in flow? Uh, it's really hard to, to really put a, a solid definition on it. Um, but we do know from kind of action sports where we know we're engaging flow because otherwise they would probably be dead, uh, that there are certain situations where you can you can put EEGs on them. EEG is tough because there's also motion artifacts and things like that. But with those people, there is stuff that I think that we can figure out um, that is a little bit easier to define. 
Well, it looks like we're we're near the end of this episode. Um, thank you, everyone, for checking out this episode of The Social Brain. Um, before we go, uh, do you have anything else you want to say? No, to no, you? I think this is good. Uh, so, yeah, well, thank you guys for, for coming, right? This is episode 13. We've been doing this for half a year now. Uh, we love coming back and doing this. We'd love your input on ideas that you want us to cover in future episodes we have some some kind of ideas of where we want to transition we want to do certain kind of blocks like we've been doing we've kind of been building up to this idea of intrinsic motivation um but we'll probably do some ones on social stuff that uh that i do a lot of research on and uh neuroplasticity and learning and all kinds of stuff like that so we'd just love to hear your input yeah, definitely. And um, if you want to support this show specifically, we finally have <laughs> our Patreon page up and I'll just uh, share my screen really quick because um, so you guys can see um, where to go. It is this uh, patreon.com slash the social brain. And um, oh, I can't <laughs> share it right now for some reason, but so patreon.com slash the social brain the link is in the captions uh you can support us right now we don't have any special tiers yet but we're going to start to get some benefits for you guys if you want to support us specifically um if you want to support taylor uh specifically the cellular republic his channel you can uh go to his store which uh how do they get uh, there yeah, so in the link in in my videos my wife runs a, a gift shop she's got all kinds of cool kind of psychology neuroscience meditation type uh mugs and shirts and stuff like that uh that helps us kind of keep going i'm on a graduate student stipend so i make nothing for money but <laughs> for sure and if you uh if you want to support uh sense of mind if my channel specifically you can go to patreon.com sense of mind and a couple different options there. But anyway, we just want to thank you guys so much for checking this out and make sure to like and subscribe. And yeah, like Taylor said, drop in the comments anything you want us to cover in future episodes. We'll look at it. And um, yeah, I guess until next awesome. time. See you guys.